Now I encourage you to rise as we read God's Word from Lamentations chapter 5. And just as a reminder, um, at the conclusion of the reading of God's Word, I will say, uh, the reading of God's Word and together we'll say thanks be to God. Hear the reading of the Lord's Word. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the, we've been, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So far, the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you have promised and you have told us that the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but your Word will stand firm and true forever. Lord Jesus, we now pray that you would watch over the words of your servant Nate, that you would guide them, and that you would protect him, and that your truth, your grace, your mercy would be proclaimed, would be preached, And that those gathered here this morning will be molded and shaped by your power and by your word. In Jesus' great and strong name, amen. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Nate Waddell. I'm one of the pastors uh, that goes to this church. I'm also the RAF campus minister at UTA. And it is good to be with you this morning. Um, we have a, a text before us that is just kind of hard to read, um, but this is God's Word, and so we're going to study it. Uh, I once heard a story of a man who was driving home one night, and while he was driving home, he was, he was driving home with his family from an event, and his car was struck, and his wife and two daughters died from the car crash, but he and the drunk driver lived. The father talked about how he spent the next few years in misery, depression, despair, going through more suffering than he ever thought possible. He talked about his depression and suffering in terms of of living in a pit, a pit of tears, a pit of sadness, loneliness, despair, and rage. In that state, he drank. He partied. he, He did drugs. He bought things. He spent tons of money all to avoid the pain of the loss. He ran from the darkness, trying to keep it always behind him 
because the pain of that darkness was so strong. And then one day, tired and exhausted, he launched all of those emotions, all of those thoughts, all that hatred, all that anger upwards toward the Lord, letting God know just how much he hated what had happened. But he said, in truth, that is actually when the healing began. That is when my life started to come back together. Talking to God with full vulnerability and honesty, feeling the emotions that I felt, naming the thoughts, and entering into that misery and anger and agony began the healing path. From this process, he said, this is what I've learned. He said, I've learned that the quickest way to get back to the light isn't to chase the setting sun and run west, but to turn east and plunge headfirst straight into the darkness. It's heading there that you will reach the rising sun and then once again be immersed into the light. It is no use chasing shadows. Healing will not come there. But our text is just this. It is a man. It is a lament. It is a man, Jeremiah, who looks honestly at the death, the destruction, the rape, the murder of his people, and he faces right into that darkness and writes the book, Lamentations. It's a prayer full of vulnerability. It's a poem of honesty. There's confession, there's confusion, and yet there's somehow in the midst of such sadness, a glimmer of hope. Hope that God just might still hear, that he might still see. In chapter 5, Jeremiah prays in that darkness, just like the Lord teaches us to do. And this book demands we listen. This book demands that we too learn how to plunge into the darkness with these people of God who are our ancestors and our family. Chapter 5 is a corporate prayer. God is the Holy One of Israel, their covenant-keeping, promise-keeping king. And because of this, Jeremiah, who sees the sin and suffering and despair of his people, comes to God, praying on behalf of himself and his people. And in doing so, we learn what we must also do in the presence of our own sin and suffering and despair. So our big question today is this. What does the prophet pray? In sin, suffering, and despair, what does the prophet pray? And in looking at how the prophet prays, we will see how we must also pray in our own sin, suffering, and despair. So look with me, if you would, at verse 1. What does the prophet pray? The first thing he does is he prays that God would remember, look, and see. Three verbs. Remember, look, and see our disgrace. Verse 1, Jeremiah says, Remember, Lord, what has happened to us what has befallen us. Look and see. Remember what has happened to your people. Look and see our disgrace. And verses 2 through 9 give us great detail into what that disgrace looks like. Verses 2 through 9 shares all the losses that Israel endured, which made it hard to survive. But these losses are also explained in a different way in Deuteronomy as the curses that come with breaking the covenant of the Lord. The blessings that Israel had enjoyed as being God's covenant children have been taken away, and in fact, they've been reversed. The curses that come with disobedience has fallen upon Israel. The fall of Jerusalem has been told by prophets hundreds of years before, and as the judgment of God falls upon Israel for its covenant unfaithfulness, God had warned, you could have turned, you could have repented, but the people did not repent. And Lamentation shares the story of God's judgment and grieves what happened to the people of Israel. Verse 2 says, the promised land, the promised land, Israel's inheritance, has been given over to foreigners. The land that they fought so hard to take, 
that God had finally given them had been taken by the Babylonians. Family life has been destroyed as everyone is fatherless or orphans. Everyone has become widows. Family life has become utterly destroyed. Their land that was to be filled with, with uh, flowing with milk and honey and providing for its people, now they can't find water. There's no wood. Everywhere they go to find food and water and, and shelter is where robbers are, is where the killers are, because the land has been taken by the Babylonians and the thieves. And they have to pay for their own thing that was once a source of blessing. They drove out the Canaanites, but now Babylon has their hands on their necks and they are devastated. Once freed from slavery, they now find themselves slaves again, drug into a new land. There is deep anguish here. Do you feel it in the prophet's words? There is deep sadness here. Can you feel it? But as much as we can understand covenant curses, it is very hard to understand why God would use such a sinful nation as Babylon to do this. It's also really hard to understand how human beings can do the things that Jeremiah talks about here. He says in verse 11, he says, Our women are raped in Zion. Our young women are raped in the towns. You see, there's nothing more humiliating that one person can do than to take the women of a conquered nation and rape them. There's nothing more dehumanizing. There's nothing that signifies your total dominance over another person than to do this and to kill the bloodlines of the pure race of Israel with a polluted race of Babylonians and Israelites. He says our princes and our strongmen are hung by their hands, which most likely means that they are publicly tortured and then executed in front of the people just to show how weak and pathetic they were. There's no dignity in Zion, Jeremiah says. There's no respect shown to the elders. Our young boys can, can barely lift their legs. We are worked like animals. Nothing is as it should be. It's horrific. It's nearly unspeakable. And God says, or Jeremiah says to the Lord, please remember what has happened here. Please look and see our disgrace. Jeremiah is asking God to look and see the suffering of his people. What's fascinating is by having this prayer become scripture, God has given dignity and a voice to the lost voices and the tears of these people. How many sieges, how many battles, how many things have happened like this over human history that we've never heard about? How many cries and tears are dried up in the sand? But God has given an eternal voice to these people so that even now, wait, we today, as we open up his words, sit and hear the voices and sit and see and sit and look upon the cruelty, what happened to these Israelites. We are made to listen. We are made to remember. We are made to look upon the most shameful acts of human history because God does not look away. God hears the voice of his sufferers and he says, so must we. He has turned these cries to an eternal scripture so that we also look and feel and see their disgrace. Now, an important question when we ask, that we have to ask when we uh, read the Bible and study the word is, where are we in the story? Where are we in the story because once you find where, where, where the author is trying to situate us, we then can apply the story to our own selves. You see, we do this without thinking all the time. Because, you know, when I watch Lord of the Rings, I'm very obviously Aragorn. 
I think of myself as Aragorn. I look at him, and I'm like, yeah, that's me. I tried to name both my sons that. Aragorn, Aragorn Jr. Did not work. Um, but, but that's who I want to be. I remember as a kid running around with a, a, show, or a, a bat you know, in my shirt wanting to be Aragorn. But I also wanted to be a hero. I wanted to be a good leader. And this story shaped me because that's who I, that's, that's who I identified with in the story. As a kid, I did the same thing with Peter Pan, except I had a shovel in my pocket. And I literally, for a year of my life, did not answer to Nate, but only Peter Pan. But I never answered to Captain Hook. I never answered to Wendy. I never answered to Sauron. I've never identified with an orc. And we're not made to. The way that we identify the story and where we learn from stories and the way we're shaped by stories is figuring out who am I in the story. It's then that it begins to shape us. And the Bible does that intentionally. It places us in the story, but often not who we think. Because who do we see ourselves in the story, right? We read the story of King David and we think, that's me. I'm the hero. I got to be like King David. I got to rise up and no matter how big the enemy, if I just pray hard enough and try hard enough, I'll defeat anything. But the thing is, is you're not King David. We're the Israelites waiting for God to raise up a champion who is victory, who can have a victory over anything and gives that victory to his people. We're not Moses. We're not called to lead people out of slavery into the promised land. We're the Israelites who are led out by the hands of the Lord into the land of blessing. We're not Jesus either. We cannot die for people's sins. We cannot turn anybody's hair black or white. We do not know the thoughts of everybody. We're the disciples. We're made to follow and imitate the things of Jesus that we can. So the question becomes, who are we in Lamentations? Are we Jeremiah? We're not Jeremiah. We're not a prophet. God has not given us a word to say over these people, so we're not Jeremiah. But we're not uh, the Israelites either. We have not gone through the things that these people have gone through, and God does not call us to be the Israelites. So are we the Babylonians? I hope not. We're not the Babylonians. But we're also, and never Yahweh. But those are the characters in the story. So then who are we? The answer to that lies in what this book is. This book is a lament. This book is a prophecy and a lament. And this book has been written and, and, and made into Scripture to, for, for God to give a voice to the sufferers so that all who read it might listen. We are those who sit outside the story and are made to listen to the stories and enter in just as God does with weeping and sadness. We are made to see and hear and feel the cries, and this is meant to shape our hearts to be the type of people who listen and cry with the sufferers, just like our Lord does. It's meant to make us lament with these forgotten voices. As God has a heart for the sufferers of this world, so too are we, and lamentations shapes us to do so. So what does that mean? That means we are to listen, to feel, and lament all that this book has to share. We are not meant to ignore this book like we so often do, but we also can't skip over the verses about rape, murder, and cannibalism of babies because God does not turn his face away from that. He weeps it. And we cannot turn our face away from the suffering of this world anymore either. We have to weep for it. We cannot turn our faces away when the world needs us to enter in. God sees it. He feels it. He doesn't turn his face away, but he weeps, and we must listen and weep as well. That is the point of Lamentations, to help us look at the worst of human cruelty and not turn away, but turn towards it. 
with the same heart that the Lord has. Jesus probably says this better than any way that I ever could when he is giving his Beatitudes, describing what it is that the Christian heart actually looks like. And he says, we are to weep with those who weep, not not theologize away their suffering, but weep with them, mourn with them. This book forces us to weep. It forces us to suffer, and it shapes us to be the type of people who look at all the suffering of this world, and we enter in, and we cry. We cry. So what does the prophet pray? He says, look, God, and see our disgrace. Remember the suffering of your people. That's the first thing. But in suffering, sin, and despair, what else does the prophet pray? The second thing he prays is he prays a prayer of confession and lament. He prays a prayer of confession and lament. Read with me verse 7, and we're going to also look at verses 15 through 18. Verse 7 says this, Our fathers have sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Verse 15 says, The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. The Bible teaches from beginning to end throughout the entire scriptures that God desires his followers, his people, to continually confess their sins, lament and feel sorrow over their sins, and from that spot, turn towards him. He calls us to repent, but he also calls us to confess and actually to have our hearts break over our sin and have our hearts be sad over our sins. To not do so is to just go through the motions. I mean, I've seen the news stories of people who've been caught doing horrible things, whether that's serial killers or shooting up entire movie theaters, and they're smiling. They're not angry. They don't feel bad about their sin. Their heart doesn't break over the evil they've done. They're just angry they got caught. They're annoyed that they got caught. But when we confess our sins without actually having our heart break over the sins, we kind of do something similar because we have to have our hearts break over the sin. That's what God calls us to. That's what Psalm 51 says. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jeremiah is doing right here. He is lamenting and confessing. He is sad by their sins. In verse 7, Jeremiah says, Our fathers have sinned and are no more, and we bear their same iniquities. In verse 16, he says, Woe to us, for we have sinned. And there is nothing more sad of the soul than to say, Woe is me. Woe to us. Our joy has ceased. Our dancing has turned to mourning. He laments the effects of his people's sins and the judgment that God has brought upon it. He weeps the terrible things that Babylon has done to his people. He says, Zion is torn down. His people are raped and killed. The temple has been leveled to dust. And the heart, the center section of this chapter is Jeremiah's confession and lament. In his lamenting, we see the devastating horror of God's wrath and how terrible it is to be under it. It's completely unbearable, and yet this is what happens to God's people after they had sinned. So what is he confessing? That was my first question as I looked at all the confessions, because it's in every chapter. It's like 12 confessions. What sins is he actually confessing? Well, to that, we have to go to Jeremiah, because Jeremiah and Lamentations go together. And in chapters 5 through 7 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah goes into great detail the sins of Israel, the sins that Jeremiah is confessing here. Here's just a summary of some of the things that he says. 
He says, God's people have set their eyes like flint to not repent. He says that their prophets, their priests, and their kings have thrown off God's yoke, and they are the rebellious, and they teach the people of God to be rebellious. He says, all the children have turned away from the Lord, just as their parents have turned away from the Lord. So too the children have turned away from their Lord, and they all go after other gods. He says, they lie about God, and they don't follow his commands. They teach and show the nations lies about God. He says, they say God is our God, but their hearts don't fear and tremble in awe of him. Israel sets traps for the orphans, the poor, and the foreigners in their midst. They have become fat and rich off the poor and the oppressed in their own nation. They're okay that the poor are in God's house. He says, my priests rule over my people with iron hands. He says, my prophets say lies, and the people enjoy this. They scorn and laugh at God's word regularly. They are the worst kinds of rebels. They have rejected me. They do not obey me. They are like all the other nations, and they lead the world into sin. Therefore, I will bring a great and terrible day of the Lord upon him. That's devastating. But then in verse 7, or in chapter 7, he says, but all of this can be avoided, even now, even in this moment, if you would just but repent. Turn to me, confess and I will relent of my great disaster. But they do not. And so God says, do not be fooled then. Do not be fooled, Israel, by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They say, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. He says, but I will only be merciful if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Do not be fooled into thinking you will never suffer judgment because God's temple is in Israel. It is a lie, says the Lord. He says, do you really think that you can steal and murder, commit adultery, lie and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours and then come back here and stand in my temple and say, we're safe, only to go right back into all those evils again. Surely I see all the evil going on in your hearts. What's fascinating to me when you study this is that these are not the sins of what we think, right? We think these are the atheists, these are the, these are the Gentiles, these are the unbelievers, these are the people of other religions. No, this is the people of God. This is the people of God. These are the sins of God's people. These are the sins that are still in our church. These are the same sins that Jesus and Peter and Paul and John warned the church about in the New Testament. You can find almost every one of these things in the New Testament The Israelites are people who believed in cheap grace. Grace that didn't require change. Grace that didn't require anything. Look, the temple's here. Look, our our kids are, you know, they've taken the sacraments. Look, I've I've written the words on my forehead and my arm. No judgment can ever come upon me. I can live however I like. And God says, no, I require your heart. And all the words and all your deeds and all your actions are always flowing out of them. And I require your heart. I know your heart, and I see they are evil. These are the sins that Jeremiah is confessing. These are the sins that Jeremiah says, we have walked in them. We have participated in them. This is the the same sin that's in their heart as in ours. And he is confessing on behalf of Israel so many sins. Woe to us. Our joy has turned to mourning. The crown, God's special privilege of being his people, has fallen from our heads. Confession and sadness and shame for sin is part of the Christian life. 
Jeremiah looks at the darkness they are in and confesses those sins to the Lord and laments what their sin has brought upon him. Their joy has turned to mourning. The crown, the special privilege, has fallen from their heads. The city is taken and desolate. The blessings of God have been taken, and the things that they have done to others has now been done to them. They have been judged. And so while Lamentations is a voice of those under intense suffering from the brutality and heartlessness of human armies and siege warfare, it is also a testimony from us to learn from. For the same sins of these people are in our own hearts. And Jesus also promised a great and terrible day, a worse day than this. He promised a day that he said, in that day when the Lord comes and judgment falls upon those who are evil and wicked, it is better to not have been born than to be under this judgment. These people thought they were safe because they had been shown grace and they didn't realize they had to embrace it and let it shape them and change them. He says, look, the temple, look, we go and worship there. Look, I've made a confession. But God says, but then Monday through Saturday, you live the same. You're just as greedy, just as hateful, just as racist, just as oppressive as the other nations, but you're worse because you say, I am a Christian. And then you do the same things as the nations. Therefore, we must learn. Let me for a second be a prophet to you which I feel very uncomfortable being a prophet and preaching from the prophets because it's hard to say things that the prophets say. But the prophets say, turn from your sins and turn to the Lord. For it is a terrifying thing to be in the hands of an angry God. He is not an enemy you want to make. And we must learn from the lamentations and the testimony that is here to confess our sins, lament from our hearts for our sins, and turn again to the Lord. This is a call to repentance for all of us. So the prophet prays to God, look and listen, look and see our disgrace. But he also prays a corporate prayer of confession for the entire people, confessing their sin, lamenting Israel's sins, and what it has brought to us, because they're all plural. (laughs) But in suffering sin and despair, what else do we pray? What else should we pray? The last thing Jeremiah does is he pleads for God's presence and embrace. The last thing he does is he pleads for God's presence and embrace. The final section of chapter 5, the way that this, the last few verses, the way this ends, astounds me. Because in the depths of darkness, in the bottom of the pit of suffering and despair, as his countrymen lie dead and raped and murdered and enslaved around him, and the Babylonians are gloating over the Israelites and their victory, as the temple's been torn down, not only has Israel been defeated, but Israel's God is defeated, Jeremiah sends out a prayer, a a defiant cry of faith, from the ash heap that makes it all the way up to the throne of God. And he says, but you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Still. Your throne endures for all times. The Babylonians may have been the hammer, but it is the Lord himself who brought down the strike. His temple may have been brought down into ruins, but the throne is untouchable. Into the darkness Jeremiah has plunged, but no matter how deep in the pit he finds himself, the Lord on high still reigns. And in verse 19 through 22, this prayer has all the marks of someone who has genuine and real faith in the Lord and trusts him and depends on him while still being able to say sin and suffering and death are everywhere. It's the same. This is an ambivalent prayer. Ambivalence is when you believe or feel two things that cannot be true at the same time. For instance, let's say you had a family member that you loved dearly and they committed a crime 
and you knew they were guilty, on the one hand, you would say, my heart feels like there needs to be justice, and I want there to be justice. I want them to go to prison. And at the same time, I love that person, and I want them to be free. Those things cannot be true at the same time, but that's what we feel in suffering and in hope and despair. We feel two things that cannot be true at the same time. And Jeremiah is praying just like this. You, O Lord, reign forever, but how is it you forget us forever? (laughs) You, O Lord, please restore us to yourself, Yahweh, unless you have utterly rejected us. This is a prayer of desperation, of dependence, of hope amidst chaos. This is the prayer of a true sufferer who hopes in God while all around him is darkness. And it's this, in this tension that Jeremiah prays, which is a prayer of dependence, that God himself would be the one who would grant mercy and restoration and dependence and renewal and blessing while remaining honest about his circumstances. Unlike his countrymen, Jeremiah is not entitled to God's grace, but he begs for it. He pleads for it. Please, Lord, only you can restore us. He has hope against hope, but it's hope in the character of God, which does not change. Not entitled, but pleading for mercy, knowing that God is the only hope. Restore us, O Lord, even though it might not be your plan, because everywhere I look, it doesn't seem like it. I I know this is a true prayer of the sufferer, because I'm sure we've all prayed this as well in our own suffering. We've prayed like this. I remember when I was in China, I had a 14-year-old student that came to faith through our ministry. Her name was Lily, and she was sweet, and she was kind, and her English was pretty good, but she was a great singer, Um, but she was an even better golfer. And one day while golfing, she swung her golf club, and her arm broke, which was really weird. So she went to the doctor, and found out later that she had an aggressive form of bone cancer and that her bones were literally withering away inside of her body and that it was just a matter of months before she was about to live as a 14-year-old, as a new Christian. Um, And she she was put in a room that could only fit three with six other people who were all over their age of 60 where she just waited to die with them. And I remember going to her room. I remember leaving her room. I think I remember leaving the most because I'm, I wanted to punch and break things. I remember I just wanted to, to scream at the heavens. How could this happen? She was so beautiful. <laughs> she was a new Christian, and she, and, and she just would sing. And that's what she did in the room she waited to die in as well. She just sang songs she learned from youth group. And these 60-year-old Chinese people would say, how do you have so much courage We're 60. We've lived a long life. You're so young. How do you have more courage than us? And she would say, I'm going to go meet Jesus. And she meant it. And I remember driving home on my moped saying, please don't take her, Lord. But also if you take her, it's okay. She's right. I believe her. It's sweet to be in your arms. How wonderful it will be for her, for you to hear her voice. But Lord, I don't want her to go. She was excited to meet him. And out of that suffering, some of those Chinese people in that room came to faith. Out of that suffering, her family came to faith. And I still remember they said, we're excited to see our daughter again one day. Thanks for letting her come to this youth group. I prayed many ambivalent prayers in the darkness of all this. Don't take her, God. Thank you for taking her, God. Please don't take her, Lord. I trust you, Lord. 
Suffering and hoping creates this kind of tension in our heart. It stretches us wide. And it's a crazy spot to be in because you really do pray and hope for things that just don't ever seem like they can all be true at once. And yet that's where Jeremiah pleads for renewal out of the chaos of watching the worst possible things he had ever seen. He still somehow has the hope to pray for renewal. And of course, Jesus prayed like this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, take this cup from me, which is him saying, I don't want to go through this, Lord. I don't want to go through the cross, Lord. I don't want to endure your wrath, Lord. This is going to be terrible. I don't want to be crushed. I don't want to lose you. Take this cup from me, but not your will, not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to go. And Hebrew says he went with joy. Doesn't make sense. But that's the tension, that's the ambivalence that suffering and sin and hope in a good God and Savior creates. And of course, we see that same tension on the cross, don't we? How righteous and just is God? Well, there we look to the cross, where sin is totally and utterly crushed, where all evil is paid for, where our perfect justice is done. But how loving is our God? Well, to there we also look to the cross, as Jesus, the God-man himself, hangs with arms spread wide, cursed, enduring the greatest tension of ripping love and justice, enduring the great day of the Lord on himself, taking the hammer blow of God meant for us. How much love is there in our God? It's from this that Jeremiah prays for renewal, that same ambivalence. After he has invited to God, look and see, and begged him to look after what's happening. And after he says, look at the death and destruction and hopelessness of my people. After he has confessed and lamented their sins, He begs again for God's arms. He knows that only God can bring life to this situation of death. That only he can cause the wicked hearts of his people to break and repent. That only he can bring life out of a situation of such darkness. And it's there that he begs, please embrace me. Embrace us, your people, once again. Maybe you've abandoned us forever, but maybe you won't. And it's to that maybe you won't that I pray. It's fascinating if you look at Lamentations because God does not speak. In the whole book, the most most deafening silence is heard, and that is that God himself never says a word. He listens. His silence is very loud. And just as there was a day between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, a Saturday of silence, so Israel finds itself waiting to see what God will do. Israel waits, wondering, praying in the silence. And all of us who have suffered know this feeling all too well. Waiting and wondering in the silence. Does God hear our prayers? But we who know the end of the story, we who live on this side of lamentations, we who've read the Bible, should not pretend that we do not know the end. For we do know the end. For we know the prophecies that Jeremiah gave to Israel, that he would restore the people of God and give them new hearts, hearts of of flesh and not hearts of stone. We've seen the man who has come with words and truth and life on his lips. We've seen the God-man himself walk amongst us and suffer with us and for us. But we've also seen the feet of those women, those disciples running from the empty tomb saying, He's alive. 
And just as Lamentations is a great foretaste of the judgment to come against all who reject the Lord and do great evil, so is the resurrection a foretaste of when evil is crushed, death is finally defeated, and sin is ultimately destroyed. And the ambivalence between what we hope for and what our reality is, is lost. For we no longer will hope for what we have, which is God's embrace. Jesus has turned our mourning to joy. He has made us so we can dance again. He has put his crown, the crown of his own prince, as his own sonship and princedom. He has taken the crown off his own head and put it on ours. He has showered us with covenant blessings, though we deserve covenant curses, because he took the curses and gives us his own blessings. He was utterly rejected and forgotten so that we could be totally accepted and loved. In Christ, God restores and embraces us once again. Jesus is the man who embraces us. So let us turn to the Lord. Let us be in the world, but not of it. We have to live in the tension that the world so desperately needs. Let us weep with those who weep, but also laugh with those who laugh sometime in the same conversation. Let us strive to live holy lives, but equally beat our chest every day saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, recognizing that it is under dependence upon God and grace. Reach for the grace. Don't just hear the grace. Be shaped by the grace. Cling on to it. Put your faith in Jesus who causes us to repent. We must live with absolute faith and hope in a conquered, crucified, risen King. The day of the Lord will come and it will be holy and mighty and beautiful and awful. And it's coming. Put your faith in Jesus so he will wipe away your tears and put his arms around you and death will be no more. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to pray from this text. The world is a hard place. Help us to stop looking away. Help us, Lord, to be a people who are honest. Help us to be a people who enter into the suffering and the brokenness of this world, for that is what the world needs and that is what you have called us to. Help us to repent. Help us to show the world that your word is true, but also help us to proclaim Jesus, the great hope, the great conqueror, the one who gave his life for us. Help us to live lives that are worthy of your calling that you have given to us. Help us to love you. Help us to worship you in every single way. We thank you so much for the life you've given us and for this place that you've given us to worship and proclaim your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.